The Daily 202 Podcast is brought to you by Indeed.com. Right now, small businesses have to be more efficient than ever, and that means every hire is critical. Indeed, the number one job site in the world, is here to help. Get a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash Daily 202. Terms and conditions apply. Offer valid through September 30th. Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Friday, September 25th. In today's news, protests over the Breonna Taylor decision continue in Louisville for a second night. Nancy Pelosi abruptly changes course by restarting a push for coronavirus aid amid signs of the economy straining. And an Italian couple met from their balconies during lockdown. Now they're engaged. But first, the big idea. President Trump reiterated Thursday that he may not honor the results should he lose re-election, reaffirming his extraordinary refusal to commit to a peaceful transition of power and prompting election and law enforcement authorities nationwide to prepare for what could become the worst constitutional crisis since the contested election of 1876. In an interview with Fox News Radio, Trump said he would only agree to step down if the Supreme Court rules that Joe Biden won the election, but that short of a decision from the justices, the vote count would amount to a horror show because of what he claims will be fraudulent ballots. There's no evidence of that. He also says that he wants the nominee that he will announce for the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's seat on the Supreme Court to be confirmed before the election because the president says he wants her to be able to cast the decisive vote in his favor so that he can hold on to power. The White House started reaching out to Republican and Democratic senators yesterday to schedule meetings for them to get to know whomever Trump announces on Saturday. It's still widely expected that that person will be Amy Coney Barrett from Indiana. The president's continuing escalation of his months-long campaign to undermine the legitimacy of the results poses his most substantial threat yet to our nation's history of free and fair elections. Democratic state attorneys general are strategizing among themselves on what to do if the president refuses to accept the results. They tell us they're most concerned that his drumbeat of unfounded accusations about fraud will undermine public confidence in the election. State election officials say they are considering what federal resources Trump might seek to deploy before and during the election. The president said last month that he will send U.S. attorneys, sheriffs, and armed law enforcement officers to polling places, which could have a chilling effect that dampens minority turnout. In North Carolina, the State Board of Elections is preparing to relocate its Election Day operations to the state's Emergency Operations Center. The State Board considered evacuating its workforce yesterday after a woman called in to accuse Democratic board members of trying to steal the election, warning that she and a thousand other conservatives were on their way to protest. In Wisconsin, State Elections Commission spokesman Reed Magney said yesterday that he was just on an election security call with federal officials in which an FBI official assured them that any deployment of military or law enforcement from the federal government for election monitoring would be illegal and that it won't happen. Arizona Secretary of State Katie Hobbs, a Democrat, said she's had discussions about how to police voter intimidation in ways that doesn't make the problem worse. Voters interviewed by our reporters yesterday in Michigan, Indiana, and North Carolina all expressed uncertainty about whether their mail-in ballots would be counted and dismay about this president's willingness to challenge the sanctity of the election. 
Socorro Herrera, 36, who's unemployed and went to vote early in a suburb north of Chicago, said she's afraid Trump will do whatever he wants. In Warren, Michigan, voters expressed similar disbelief. Deborah Grimaldi, 66, a retired sewing machine operator, said, quote, to go against all norms. That's what upsets me. It's like he wants to be a king or a monarch. Virginia Attorney General Mark Herring, a Democrat, said if there's one thing he's learned in suing Trump and his administration dozens of times, it's that when this president threatens to cross democratic boundaries and constitutional norms, he usually does it. And when he denies it, it often turns out he was actually doing it all along. Maine Secretary of State Matt Dunlap, another Democrat, said categorically and emphatically, when you have public officials casting doubt on the process the way this president is, it's incredibly corrosive. He said he cannot describe that with enough vehemence, describing it as, quote, nearly a criminal or treasonous act. Now, Senate Republicans on Capitol Hill tried to deflect Trump's challenge to the foundation of American democracy as nothing more than Trumpian bravado. With almost no direct criticism of Trump's statements themselves, Republicans uniformly asserted that if Joe Biden wins the election, they will support a peaceful transition to the Democrats' inauguration come January. Most Republicans, though, tried to dodge how they would respond if the president refused to accept the results and stoked violence among his supporters. They either called it a hypothetical that they wouldn't contemplate, or they said Trump just talks like that but doesn't follow through. Senator Ben Sass, a Republican from Nebraska, said, quote, the president says crazy stuff. We've always had a peaceful transition of power. It's not going to change. Kevin Kramer, the Republican senator from North Dakota, credited the controversy to Trump's tendency to speak in very extreme manners and dismissed the latest controversy as just part of that trend. Chris Murphy, the Democratic senator from Connecticut, has been quietly reaching out to GOP colleagues to encourage them to hold the line for democracy. Murphy said Republicans are still in denial that this president would ever ignore the results of the election by claiming that he won because of fraud. But Democrats, he says, are trying to get them to acknowledge that every absentee ballot must be counted, fearful that the president could try to head off the results by contesting mail-in ballots and stopping the count before it's done. In interviews, along with statements and social media posts, more than two dozen Senate Republicans pledged support for a peaceful transition. But only one, Mitt Romney, took on the president directly. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar as this week comes to an end. Number one, Brianna Taylor's mother, Tamika Palmer, posted an illustration of her daughter on Instagram last night with the hashtag, the system failed Brianna. She did that as thousands again took to the streets in Louisville, Kentucky. And the Taylor family's lawyer, Ben Crump, said that the family, who will speak at a news conference on Friday afternoon, was devastated. Relatives were apparently informed by Kentucky Attorney General Daniel Cameron of the decision only 10 minutes before it was announced. Crump was among the growing number of people yesterday, including Kentucky's Democratic governor, calling for Cameron to release more information about his findings and the grand jury's decision-making. The grand jury proceedings are closed to the public, and Cameron, Mitch McConnell's protege, says that he would not release a full grand jury report because of an ongoing criminal case against one of the officers. Protesters nationwide said they are feeling despair and outrage that the police officers responsible for the deaths of so many black people from Eric Garner in New York to Philando Castile in Minnesota and a host of others, would not be held accountable. And the demonstrations turned violent in some places. In Buffalo, New York, a man drove a pickup truck into a crowd of protesters. In Seattle, 13 people were arrested Wednesday evening and multiple officers were injured. A Seattle police officer who rolled his bike over a protester's head in the melee has been placed on administrative leave. Number two. 
House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is moving to assemble a new coronavirus relief package to form the basis for fresh talks with the White House amid mounting pressure for moderates in her caucus and increasingly dire economic news. Pelosi has more recently focused on an additional $2.2 trillion in aid, a figure Republicans say is too high. But according to my colleagues Erica Werner and Rachel Bade, in a meeting with House Democratic leaders yesterday, she said her new bill is going to have a price tag of around $2.4 trillion because of urgent needs arising from restaurants and airlines. Pelosi asked her key committee chairs to get to work putting together a draft. The package is expected to include stimulus checks, aid for airlines, small businesses, cities and states, as well as rental assistance, unemployment assistance, and funds for election security in the Postal Service. She said the bill could come up for a vote on the floor next week, even if there's no Republican support. Pelosi had resisted demands for moderates to narrow her ambitions or put a new bill on the floor, insisting that Republicans need to make concessions first. But the window for action is narrow. Congress is supposed to adjourn at the end of next week through the election, although lawmakers could be called back to vote on a deal. Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin, Trump's lead negotiator, reiterated during an appearance before the Senate Banking Committee that he supports more stimulus and is prepared to resume talks. He also said the White House would support more checks for Americans, something Democrats have also said they're for. And Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell also agreed during that same hearing that more assistance is vitally needed to prevent the country from slipping deeper into recession. But Republicans, especially on the Senate side, dismissed Pelosi's move as insincere, noting that she's just raised her asking price from $2.2 trillion to $2.4 trillion before they've even come to the table. Number three, the coronavirus pandemic has yielded few silver linings. But on this terrible week, let me end with one of them. An Italian couple had become known as the Romeo and Juliet of the coronavirus lockdown. In true Shakespearean style, their romantic story began on their respective balconies, while Italians were forced to sequester inside their homes because of the pandemic. It was in Verona, the same city where Romeo and Juliet took place. The love story of this pandemic couple, told by reporter Sidney Page, doesn't have the tragic ending of Shakespeare's star-crossed lovers. In fact, six months after they met from across their balconies, the COVID sweethearts are now engaged to be married. Michelle de Alpolos, 38, first laid eyes on Paola Agnelli, 40, in mid-March when she walked out onto her balcony. Paola spotted Michelle that night on his terrace and said it was love at first sight. She stood directly across him on her sixth floor balcony while her sister performed a violin rendition of We Are the Champions as part of a nightly 6 p.m. musical performance to uplift the spirit of the neighborhood. A few minutes into the song, they caught one another's gaze. Both described the moment as magical. They've lived with their families in those apartments for their entire lives, but they'd never met. It just so happened that his sister recognized her from the gym, where they both worked out before the lockdown, so she knew her name. With that, he tried to find her on social media. He found out that she had an Instagram profile. He didn't, so he created an account. Then he followed her. She followed him back. They communicated for weeks over the app. Then they agreed to talk on the phone. When they first connected by phone, the conversation stretched past 3 a.m. For then the days and the weeks that followed, they talked constantly every night, often losing track of time. Although they longed for an in-person date, Italy remained in a mandated lockdown. For 10 weeks, their blossoming relationship was confined to hours-long telephone calls and daily flirtation across their balconies. But the bond strengthened. In May, they finally met at a park, and at long last, removed their masks to share a first kiss. In keeping with their beginnings, the couple continues to have nightly phone calls sitting across from each other on their respective balconies. 
Although their tale of sudden and dedicated love bears similarities to Shakespeare's classic script set in Verona, this happy ending is quite the opposite. And that's The Daily 202 for Friday, September 25th. Thanks for listening. Our show is produced by Ariel Plotnick, and our theme music is by Ted Muldoon. I'm James Holman. I'll talk to you on Monday. Thank you.